to the Data Driven Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. All right, welcome to the Data Driven Podcast, where we dive deep into getting more value from our business data. Whether you're a data professional, leader, or just curious about developing data skills, the Data Driven Podcast is here to guide you along your journey. I'm your host, co-founder of Story IQ, Dominic Bohan. This week, we're going to talk about creating a competitive advantage with strategic data identity. Joining us is John Belkamp, who is the identity and data strategy lead at Capgemini, a global leader in partnering with companies to transform and manage their business by harnessing the power of technology. Capgemini is trusted by clients to address the entire breadth of their business needs, from strategy and design to operations, fueled by the vast and innovative world of cloud, data, AI, connectivity, software, digital engineering, and platforms. And today, John and I are going to discuss how to construct a data identity moat. Here's my conversation with John Velkamp, Identity and Data Strategy Lead at Capgemini. John, thanks for joining us on the Data Driven Podcast today. Thanks, Dominic. I appreciate you giving me the time to talk about data, my favorite thing. Awesome. To kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and role as Identity and Data Strategy Lead at Capgemini? Sure thing. Been in the industry for a while. MarTech, AdTech spaces, everything from good old-fashioned ETL to the modern APIs, like how we get data to places. I spent a good portion of my career at Axiom, where I was focused on data and as well as some of their identity solutions. And at Capgemini, I'm taking that experience of not only <laughs> what data do you have and its sources and everything about that, and we'll cover it, but also what can you do with it, what should you do with it, and how you can make it a strategic advantage for your brand. Cool. Can we start with data identity mode? Could you explain what this concept is and why it's relevant today? Absolutely. I will not be one of the thousands, millions talking about the changing ecosystem in ad tech and martech and you know what browsers will and will not do, but everybody's aware of where we are at. As a result, now more than ever, and we've, people have been saying this for decades, you have to take control of your data. And to do that, you need, and this is where the moat comes in, you need to create your own self-sufficiency with your data as much as you possibly can as this ecosystem changes. So it's not a moat against, I'd say, competitors. It's more of a moat against the ecosystem. And even the moat against, maybe not the right words, but more of it's bolstering your own brand ownership and control of data so that you create a moat <laughs> from some of the effects the ecosystem could in, you know, push upon you. Okay, this is interesting because I've just had a few guests come on and they've shared very passionate cases for why you should potentially outsource the management of your data to a solution like theirs. Is mm -hmm. building a data identity boat potentially compatible with outsourcing the management of your data? Great question. And thank you for drawing down this difference. Absolutely. You don't have to have you know, on-staff, on-prem people who are being paid by your brand to be the ones to take control of that data. It's more, again, the brand's control, and we'll extend the control to partners and other services against the ecosystem. So absolutely, you can definitely empower some partners and providers to bolster your data. 
Absolutely. Yes. Okay. That's a relief. So data identity mode, it implies we're keeping something out, right? It's a nice metaphor. What are we keeping out? Let's talk about what we're keeping in. I'm going to flip it on you. Um, It's more about the, with increasing legislation, you know, we know about GDPR and the, the create changing, evolving, undulating landscape of domestic privacy policies and what will land and until we get a federal something in place. Um, now, more than ever, you have to assume and take the most draconian or conservative view of what you can do with data you have. So you want to protect yourself. We now we'll think of the mode as privacy or a legislative mode, like against, frankly, being found on the Wall Street Journal homepage. Mm. That's what you want to avoid is by running afoul of some region's privacy policy. So again, cycling back, it is the moat to protect yourself once with the data that you have. Is it more about keeping the data in and from leaking out than it is from keeping the bad guys out? Thank you for recentering. It is about both. The in portion is definitely protection mode. And this is a really good example. Like LiveRamp's a great partner for many, many brands. And they created an environment where you can share your PII data in a safe manner to then make it extensible, available for various destinations for various activities. And that's great. And there are other kind of moving away a little more directly if you can, some brands allow you to interact with them using PII. I'll use the example like Facebook. Facebook is something where you can share PII to them. Uh, Sorry, what's PII? Personally, Uh, identifiable information. That's why no one says it aloud. It's hard to say. They use mm -hmm. the acronym. Yeah, you definitely want to guard that as you can. And you can set up, you know, relationships with, you know, destinations and you can hash it. You can do many things to ensure that your data is, you know, at rest being, you know, obfuscated so it can't be read. But still, there's some risk. There's always risk when data leaves your realm. So you try to partner with folks, again, like LiveRamp or other such providers, where they can help you convert that to an even less identifiable form. So that's protecting in. As far as protecting out, I think that's more of a, I can't speak at length, many smarter people who can about some of the cybersecurity aspects. And that's certainly something to be, that's the moat from, you know, protecting things coming in, but kind of from a best practices and how you want to make sure your data is quality, I would suggest there's an, a moat protect outwardly, you know, or outwardly coming in a quality issues, I guess the best way to say it. So I've met her, a moat can also when you think of it in terms of data quality and you know freshness and relevancy, frankly, you can kind of keep a moat to keep out bad data. Not that it's evil or you know has malintent, but just like I do, I need this data. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put a moat up so I'm not wasting my precious you know cycles of time looking at data, doing analyzations and such. Cool. Yeah. Could you give us an example of some oh. data that might be seductive? Like, oh, we've got to capture this data and actually it's, uh, it's useless yeah. or worse still misleading. Sure. So let's talk about intent data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so intent data can be anything from, I'll use some very kind of rough classic examples where people say, oh, that doesn't really happen anymore. So just for, for proxy's sake, this is a classic example. There's a 14-year-old young man on a website for Ferraris and someone will mark him down as car enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And then there's someone who's living in a high income zip code who has three BMWs in the garage and is looking to really upscale the gun Austin Martin. And that person may be on the Austin Martin site. So I'd argue, well, both have intent. Mm-hmm. One is more valuable than the other. So when you start to examine the quality and the sources of the data you buy, that's one example. Like, where's it really coming from? How has it been 
created to say nothing of privacy and rights to use. That will just park that for now. And another good example is relevancy. And, um, you know, if I'm selling widgets, do I really need to know car intent? Like that's just, do I need to actually buy and engage with this data set and spend time, you know, obtaining it? And then there's also kind of freshness and source from a different lens, and that is modeled versus actual. A lot of data you can get is modeled. And there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with modeled data, let me be very clear. But you have to be very thoughtful and very curious and ask a lot about the modeled data set you're getting. Like, how was it modeled? What's it modeled off of? What's the seed value? I know I'm going pretty deep. I apologize. It's perfect. But all this is, is relevant because, mm-hmm. you know, if you have, you know, 100 records and it's modeled up from three actual values. <laughs> There's some room for error. If you've got modeled data that's, you know, from 87 records, like, okay, I feel more comfortable that, you know, whatever criterion they use to model from the 87 onto the 100 is very important. But you can at least feel like there's a good, strong seed signal to make those other 13 records relevant. So that's, you want to examine those things as you look at your data. Yes. Now, bring it back to the mode, which sure. implies a kind of more grand strategy, right? So some of what you're doing, maybe it's, you're describing there, maybe it's common sense, maybe, you know, common sense is not so common and these mistakes are still continuously made. Is it right? My way of thinking is that a moat implies some sort of system to make sure that we're making good decisions around what data we do ingest, that we don't have to think it through every single time. Yeah, no, those are great questions because at the end of the day, while we can delight ourselves on examining modeling techniques for various data sets, who cares? And the who cares part is you only, and by the way, we'll keep this analogy of the moat. You only throw down a drawbridge for friendlies if you determine that that data set's relevant. You determine that data set's relevant by performance. It's that simple. You test and you test and you test. You should certainly examine it from kind of holistically before you embrace any data set, you know, Who's the company? What's the record? Where's the data coming from? You know, all those things I mentioned at a larger scale for the entire data set. But again, why would you do this? Is at some point you say, by adding auto enthusiast, am I getting a lift? Yes, no. And then and then if you if you have the time and wherewithal, and I'll explain this in a minute, mm-hmm. I'll come back to this, you could actually um, test two different data sets. Like mm-hmm. I have brand A, brand B, which auto enthusiast outperforms. In the real world though, no one has that kind of time. So that's where that's where some of the advances in Gen AI may come in handy. I don't mean to sprinkle Gen AI on this just for the sake of sprinkling Gen AI on this, but truth is it, it could help. You could let it help sort out what data works and, and also creating the segments that would test in the first place. But fact is there's, if we're going to talk about data, moats, threats, and opportunities, like there's bigger bigger fish to fry before you get up to the, you know, Model A versus Model B on provider A, provider B. There's more about like, that's great. I'm glad you have the the right model for yourself. Are you sure you got it applied to the right person? Mm -hmm. That's really the core of this. Okay, so maybe that's the big fish. Can we uh, jump into the big fish? That is the biggest fish, yes. Yep, (laughs) that's not the biggest. So again, I think I mentioned, we've all known that you have to have the most accurate data you can. And you know, businesses are rewarded and punished by dollars. And there hasn't been sufficient dollar punishment in the market right now for not getting it as well as you can. With the current ecosystem, or let's just say the last decade of ecosystem, frankly, people were abundant. New customers were somewhat abundant. There were 
platforms where you could just advertise with lookalike data and get people that were probably going to perform. And the costs were such, and the frankly, the cookie infrastructure was such that you could find your people and people like them relatively easily at a pretty reasonable price in various destinations. So it was great. So would an you, example of this be Facebook before they removed a lot of the demographic and targeting data that was I, I um, that brought in through third-party data? I think there were privacy concerns. I mean, certainly, having worked with Facebook, you know, their ad platform and the ability to use data target was very, very strong. And mm. most importantly, what they did with data and some of their own, you know, some of their own black box tech, you know, technologies were very good. So mm. we have to, you know, Give, the, give them credit. What we find out, though, is they did shut down some of the, the partner data categories, and they, they were, you're left to the Facebook-only data, which is still very strong. But where that data came from has been shrinking, meaning you know there's been some changes in, you know, Apple's made some changes mm. we all know about. Other folks are, you know, the Google changes, it's starting to trickle in. The point being is that it used to be that Facebook could see more of their users in more places and get more of that signal back to give you great ad buys. And that's just, you know, it's, it's decreasing. So, you know, in the system, whenever there's a decrease, that means, you know, when supply is limited, demand or demand is the supply is limited, demand goes up. It's translating to it's not as quite as in as expensive as it used to be. So finding new customers is a little more expensive than it used to be because you can't just say, here's a footprint of people that I want to go buy. Please take all the things you know from all, like, we can talk about the programmatic world, but the programmatic world gave an incredibly wide, vast footprint of knowledge that could be tapped into to buy people just like you wanted. So it was relatively cost-effective to just get more customers. And I say all this because the expectations, and this is all kind of a, a one, two, three punch story, ecosystems drawing down on sharing data overall, not a bad thing, but... And some of the walled gardens have some pretty big levers they can pull when they make decisions, mm -hmm. and they have been. So the data that you can use has been decreasing. The amount of control, or I should say the amount of permissions and like legislative privacy concerns, like that's drawn down that. Like GDPR in, in Europe changed a lot of what you could do. And then you also funnel in the, meanwhile, the folks who did know data and know, knew it well were starting to increase their use of it so that the customer expectation has increased tremendously. Mm. I mean, if you're on your phone and you dial up an app and you put two things in your basket and they're not there, when you go to the uh, online web version, you're going to be grumpy. Even if you didn't log in on the app or, or at least, I'm sorry, let's just take a mobile app or a mobile browser. Even if you did it that way, not through the app, just through the browser, you still have an expectation. I don't have to sign in. You should remember me. And so people got that right. They got these experiences right. You know, carts followed people. You know, and so people start to, they've expected this sort of treatment. And then everybody sat at home for three years <laughs> and was online buying things. And they just got more used to this experience, you know, and, and they, they heavied up on it. So you put the one, two, three together. And now more than ever, if you don't know who you're talking to, it's that much more critical. And you have to start rebuilding that, essentially. Okay. So he's building a moat around your data. Would it be correct to say it's building a moat around your first-party data, but also quality third-party data you enrich it with? And part of the reason we're doing this is because we can't rely on platforms like Meta or Google to do it for us as much as we could in the past. And I'm glad you said as much as, because mm -hmm. it is not a binary switch. That's a very good word to use. And I'd also respectfully push the moat analogy to maybe moat and marshes sticky. Anyway, the reason is that 
you definitely have to have a moat around the PII that you've worked your brand's tail off to earn and maintain. And I'll talk about this kind of self-fulfilling circle in a moment, but that is the tightest ring. Let's think concentric, concentric rings. That'll probably be more of a, an analogy. Like that tightest ring, absolutely. You guard it as tightly as you can, but you have to transact. You have to mm-hmm. put users out there to advertise to, and you also want to take advantage. So, you know, like I worked at Axiom for a long time, fantastic data set, and you want some of that data. They have some mm-hmm. fantastic, like, you know, behavioral data. They have some kick butt PII where you can like shore up your own records. Like, oh, it's, he doesn't really live on main street. It's main way. Great. Thanks, Axiom. You can tune it up and guarantee postal delivery. You want to bring in that third party data across the drawbridge and <laughs> across <laughs> into the, you know, through the moat and you own it and you set up a relationship so you can control it. And that becomes your first party data by the very nature. It's yours. Now you've paid for it. It's yours. So it becomes first party. Bear with me on that. Yeah. But there's a lot of secondary or second party data opportunities where you have to reach out and you have to shake hands with somebody. And clean rooms, we've been hearing about them. Clean rooms have been around for a long time, but them being stood up on the cloud with such kind of, with the ability to really flip up the rules, like, you know, tick the boxes for the rules and the usage and the downstream usage, like that sophistication is new and also the speed and the size. So being able to use like a good quality third party cloud player to then join those two data sets with under extremely controlled circumstances for extremely clear outcomes for both parties to use the data, you've now expanded your footprint, but you've left the moat or you've, you've left the island, you're across the moat, and you have to establish the best, most meaningful ways to do that because you, at the end of the day, you still have to think back to that, it's my data, my customer, I must protect them. I must do everything I can to, you know, from a competitive standpoint, not just tell everybody who my customers are. That's not good. But also, and I was going to get back to this and give me a moment to soapbox. There is a self-fulfilling prophecy with data usage and customer satisfaction. And everybody knows it, just like you have to eat your vegetables and you have to exercise sometimes if you want to be healthy. If you want to have a healthy CRM system, really have people, you know, treat your customers well. You must demonstrate you've used their data appropriately, maturely, ethically in relation to what they expect. And that gets you more data because they trust you more and they'll share more. And that in turn makes your data much more powerful and allows you to guess what? Serve them better (laughs) so they like you more. So it's this nice, beautiful, self-fulfilling circle. And you've got to get into that spiral, that upward spiral by doing things like I could take my data, join on email to this large box chain who can tell me where I've been selling my product across the nation, how much am I going to get out of that transaction? Mm. And will, while I'm not giving my email to this big box store, even exposing it, is that risk worth it? And the answer is, yeah, it absolutely is. To give you the answer right now, if you encode it successfully and allow for a very limited aggregation and some other you know, actions done on that data when both parties receive it, it's totally worth it. But you know, you need to think like that because you know, you are the guardian of this first party data that's been given to you by your customer and you have to be very thoughtful about it. I do disagree. So if we want to set up a clean room, for those aren't familiar with clean rooms, uh, we've had a guest talking about clean rooms just recently. So let me see mm-hmm. if I can summarize it well. It's a platform where you can share data with third parties without exposing the underlying data. You can control exactly mm-hmm. what you share with mm-hmm. them and they share with you. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you do in your work with Capgemini, do you help clients set up oh, yeah. clean rooms? 
Yeah. And here's a kicker. In some situations, we actually do it intra-brand where you've got you know business silo one and business silo two who, for whatever reasons, mm. hyper-competitiveness, they might have you know such a branded experience that their permissions and their privacy policies don't quite align. So you can't just assume that, hey, here's everything I know about John's affinity with widgets and all the widgets he looks at. And then I want to go buy apples, you know, like, doesn't mean you can take my widget Intel and all the things I've done on that site and then apply it to this, even if it's the same company, because the privacy policies do matter. So we've seen it. Yeah, we've done it. Is that and I should, different geos because of different laws in different regions? That's also a very good point. Yeah. And you might filter. You might just say like California right now, depending how you read some of the legislation, you could take a very draconian or, or guarded way of sharing data and say, you know what? Let's just not include California in this. Let's just play it safe. You know, I wouldn't personally recommend that pending. Well, I'd have to learn more about the use case. But going back to your question, absolutely. It's not only a location. It's also a practice clean rooms. So their InfoSum is a fantastic alternative as well. They have kind of more of this, this concept of a bunker where it's, I won't bore you with it, but it, the idea is it doesn't even have to leave your premise. My point is you don't have to ship data to be kind of joined. You can yeah. just leave it at rest on site. And then the joining takes place kind of through connections. It starts its transition to a place to be joined already encoded and safe. I like the, the term bunker. We've got a lot of metaphors in this show today. So as soon as it leaves the bunker, it's already anonymized, encrypted. Something is done to it so that if it's intercepted, the personal information is safe. Yeah, I mean, even better. I don't work for InfoSum, but I've, I've done some reading up on it. It's actually not even the data. It's a representation of the data that's then encoded. It's even like that, that much more removed from being usable if intercepted. But the idea is like for financial institutions who are like, I can't let this information leave my premise. Like there's some people who are not on the cloud because they can't. Mm -hmm. And for those folks, this offers a solution. Like I can do this sort of data collaboration in this ultra safe way. It stays on-prem. You do have to load software, of course, and you have to put a box together. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, but anyway, it offers a solution. I just, the thing is there's a lot of clean room environments. There's a lot of clean room providers and all of them are great. And there's, I'm not, drawing favorites. I'm just saying in that spectrum of how you can engage with a clean room, it's everything from literally on-prem software installation to exporting to a set of boxes that live in the cloud and everything in between, you know? Okay. Yeah. Different costs for these solutions, different risks and benefits. So you don't actually set up these solutions, right? Your role at Capgemini is to provide advice to the client on what's going to be the best solution to them. You do? No, we do set them up. Oh, Okay. I personally have not, but but my colleagues have. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, right, right. On Snowflake, there's Snowflake as a wonderful clean room environment. And kind of, this is interesting just to to draw one layer deeper. If you've got two brands that just want to dance, let's just say an airline and a credit card company are like, hey, Mm -hmm. we can co-market together. We've got some shine. We can kind of, you know, together we can make a new thing. And we've all sat on flights and waited for the people to stop talking in the aisles about the brand of credit cards. So everybody knows what I'm talking about. But that's a great use case where they compare customer lists and they have some criteria and they mark each other's files for activation. Great. There are other ones where it's not as equal, where I may be a big box retailer and I have like insanely good data on what sub products are selling and which geos at what time of day with average person, uh, average basket price. Like, you know, you can think of these, you know, these big box environments. 
And if you're like Johnson and Johnson or 3M and you're like, I'd love to get this insight because I don't talk to my direct customer. I don't really have that relationship. They should come see me, by the way. We can fix that and turn it around. But until then, yeah, they go. So in that relationship, the big box is like, I really don't want much from you. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you want something from me. So, and just by way of example, um, LiveRamp has a wonderful data collaboration package that I don't want to say is geared towards that, but it's definitely, it's definitely takes in mind the large retailer. How can we, you know, successfully and honestly access this data and aggregate to inform how we plan some of the brand business? It's, re- it's a very strong. It's built into Google. It's very strong. And it's like, I could use it. It's that simple. So it's, it's great. Sounds good. Okay. So because we've talked to clean room providers that can set up these solutions. So the sort of customers that come to you, is that people who are like, well, we don't know what clean room provider to use. We just know what we want to achieve, which is like getting some big box data. Help me, John. You know, we're even a little more upstream than that, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, what has happened in the last five years is that everybody and their brother has said, I need a CDP. And there was kind of a rush to the CDP market. That's customer data platform. Customer data platform, exactly. And there are many, many flavors of CDPs and all have some some unique endemic value to like their solution. Some have many solutions. No one has all solutions. You know, like um, some do uh, identity. So what these customer data platforms do, kind of uh, core of their thing is we're going to track customers. And we're going to do it with a lean in on web activity and some surrounding technologies like email and maybe SMS, you know, that kind of thing. And we know to do that, you're going to want to really track the customer and create journeys and, and these kind of next best offer. A lot of driving people down a funnel. And that's some of them do that really well. And some are good, but they don't lean in as hard because maybe their identity is fantastic. So if just by way of description, if you had to really good identity. You're like, nah, my stuff's pretty tight. I could use some tuning, but I'm pretty good already. But boy, I'd love to get this journey thing nailed. You mm-hmm. go with vendor, vendor this. If you're like, identity's a mess and you don't even know you have triplicate <laughs> of people, you might want to lean in with one. You've still got journey optimization and some of that, but their ID resolution is fantastic. Point being to all this is that we're engaged customer first practice at Capgemini to say like, you know, <laughs> where, how is your identity? What are you trying to do with customer journeys and what sort of analysis are you going to do once you have some of these behaviors? And by the way, um, how many other systems are we feeding? Because I think a big misconception with CDPs that I think everybody kind of found out is like, oh, you know what? They're really not CRM systems. They're not master data systems. They're really just kind of focused on the, the things I was mentioning. Doesn't mean they're not great. Please don't, please don't. Don't make that assumption. <laughs> no, no. Because I, mean, I think yeah. what happens is you got the CDPs are, are the best things since sliced bread. Oh, they're not. They don't do all these things. They're they're not good. And it's like easy. Like all things, it's, you know, render yeah. Caesar what Caesar's. Like everybody does something well. And what we do very well is stitching those together. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you need a little A and a little X. And then you need a 16 over here. And like combining this, the solution that allows folks who go like, and I'll get to your, your CD, your clean room question. Now, now in all this, and what am I trying to do? Does a clean room make sense? Yes or no? Okay. And what do you expect to get out of it? Okay. Then, then is it an on-prem solution? Is it a, a snowflake solution? Or is it you want to do with LiveRamp? What are you trying to do? Are you a big box trying to sell your data? That's one thing. If you're a, a, a small player, you, you, know, you may not need to do a clean room. You may just be able to have us set up a, a solution for you. 
and we'll get too detailed. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, cool. So if you're like me, perhaps a little bit overwhelmed by the jargon, you know about all these options that are out there, but not which is the right option, which is the right tool to use, right? And the right tool for the right job is really what it's all about. Basically, that's where you can help. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you wanted an answer. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> John, tell me every possible situation and every possible tool well, that, for every okay. possible situation and every yeah. combination. No, that's what I was laughing. I'm like, oh, I'm like, this is what I get paid to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Cause it, and, no, and the thing is, no one's doing it wrong. They're just not doing it as well as they can. You know, that's the other thing is, you know, I've, I've seen enough decks floating in the atmosphere with like fear and doubt and death and uncertainty. It's like, no, no, everybody's trying to do the right thing. They may not know that, you know, brand C has this particular capability that's going to, oh, yeah, that would help things, wouldn't it? You know, and also, frankly, designing for the future, but building for the now. Like a lot of folks are trying to boil the ocean. I'm like, easy. Why don't we see Q4 land successfully? Then we'll work on the ocean, you know? So a lot of it's, you know, but being thoughtful that, you know, don't put a solution and you have to rip out. And we're ripping, we rip out a lot. We rip out an awful lot. (laughs) I shouldn't say it. It makes it sound like ogres. No, and a lot of times we're like, that's great. Did you know you can use, like Adobe's a great example. Adobe has so many capabilities. And a lot of times it's like, that's great. You you went in with this this particular tool set. Did you know they can also do this? And they're like, they can? I'm like, yeah. But since you want this particular tweak to your solution, we're going to recommend you kind of run the data through this route to then serve this portion of Adobe. And they're like, okay, great. So I, I just buy from Adobe this awesome component. You guys kind of supersize it you know, super speed it. Great. That's the one, two punch. That's really our specialty is, is that additive touch or we can build it from scratch, but it's, you know, you can get it faster with more instant gratification. Sometimes if you buy, you know, stuff off the shelf with customization. Okay. That wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. Thanks to John Velkamp, Identity and Data Strategy Lead at CapGemini for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, John and I are going to discuss how brands should build a marketing data strategy. If you can't wait till our next episode and would like to learn more about John, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes or visit his company website, capgemini.com. One link in our show notes I wanted to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head on over to datadrivenpod.com. We have summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. And if you want to share your most compelling use cases of data, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. You can also add me on LinkedIn. My name is Dominic Bohan and reach out directly. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. So subscribe in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow. That's all for today. Remember, until next time, when it comes to data, less is more.